ask about Illuminati Since the charting of Petux Is it Disney Mind Control? Is this MK Ultra Deluxe? Con dos shots para estar Con Disney Se no va a tu chafar Con Disney Pino Land, Pinocchio Con Disney As above, so below Pinocchio seeks fun on Pleasure Island But traffickers need just falling minds Captain Hook the Lost Boy in Neverland Saving kids from Peter Pan's designs Mean of this to survive the Barracuda And that nobody means no one Snow I never took another breath Bird Prince the Angel of Death has come Go Disney We go from real to real Bohemian Grove and no more feel I call Disney Ask about to move and I take I call Disney Teach a call to everybody I call Disney Go wish upon a star I call Disney You know what to just find Disney, the new land Pinocchio, yeah, yeah. I call Disney, it's a fun solo show. I call Disney, please enjoy the show. Hey everybody, it's the Occult Disney Podcast, where we go searching through the, the entrails of the mouse to find magic. That, that was darker <laughs> and I meant for it to come out. Like, I don't know, this movie though has that kind of... Sleepy stuff, right? You know that uh, tactile, slimy stuff. That's that's the it inside does. of a peach and bugs. Uh, hi, this is Matt here, as always. As always, there. It's a paranoid American. Howdy, as always. And I'm I was completely unprepared for that intro because now I'm trying to scramble in my brain for whatever the name of divination it is, where you actually use the entrails Screeing? of animals. Screeing. Uh, well, no. well, scrying. No, that's, a, that's a that's a mirror, isn't it? Right. So, so there is a there's a name for a specific type of divination where you specifically use entrails in order to predict or read, you know, the language of nature. So, yeah, I think I'd that's love the, to help you, but if you hit rewind and listen to me say it again, you can hear me actively trying to get that word as I'm saying that sentence, <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't find it in my head. So, uh, I'm, I'm sure there's three listeners out there screaming the word and you know chanting it as we are not saying it <laughs> but uh yeah today it's james and the giant peach the follow-up to the nightmare before christmas so kind of on like a slightly different track of disney you know like in the company it's distributed distributed some producer stuff but kind of its own thing as well i i think uh, well, I never really knew this was a, I mean, I guess it was obvious because the name's right on it, but I never really considered this a Disney movie exactly. And it really does feel like a little passion project from Tim Burton that happened in like a dark closet 
that, <laughs> you know, somebody forgot like, oh yeah, that's right. He was working on that thing. Well, a few things to consider on this one is um, they've taken Tim Burton's name off and the, the poster, the original theatrical poster is Walt Disney presents James and the giant peach um, or excuse me, Walt Disney pictures presents James and the giant peach. Tim Burton's still a producer here, but I would say he's now name only. Um, this is this is where you're really focusing, I think, on Henry Selleck, who also should get 90% of the credit for A Nightmare Before Christmas. But this is him kind of uh, really starting to go on his own thing. Um, for people that don't know, his later career has a bunch of these stop-motion films. Uh, Monkey Bone, Coraline, and Wendell and Wild are the ones he's done since James and the Giant Peach. So... Um, that and that's that's a fair point. Coraline is a really a good example. I think that's like the most recent one out of the the big ones that he did that had the same style. Although I just like no shade thrown at, and I already forgot his name, so it just goes to prove the point. But if Disney had leaned into the Tim Burton, it would have made more sense, I think, because if you imagine you walk into this movie, you've never you know heard or seen any of the promo for it. And all you see is Walt Disney presents James and the Giant Peach. And then you see the movie that you see. It's definitely not the, it doesn't fit into that same mold of all of the Walt Disney presents and then a thing, right? Like this one is, it's very much Tim Burton presents, you know, Nightmare Before Christmas. Yeah. Even so if it's only 10% Burton, at least having that name there, you know that there's something about it going in where, oh, this is going to talk about mouse entrails. And we all knew, you know, coming in before this that, you know, Nightmare Before Christmas had been a few years before this. So we were kind of, if anything, this one was like too, I mean, it's weird, but it's weird in a different way. I mean, it's not a Tim Burton weird as much, which I, I don't think I was going in. I, I saw this, I think, opening night. I, it, it was a high school date night, right? So uh, I, kind of a weird date saying... movie when you think about it. This this was a date movie. It's kind of an interesting date movie. Well, I know, but it's interesting because there's a lot of the movies, like a goofy movie or something, where I'm like, yeah, that was completely off my radar because I was in high school. But this one, it was, I guess, you know, um, I don't think the hot topics had quite opened yet, but the Nightmare Before Christmas imagery was still probably starting to slip into the more mainstream. So I was like, oh yeah, let's go see the see, see the new one. I mean, th I think that's where the, the slight age difference, because right here is when I think I had read James and the Giant Peach re recently within the last like five years when this had come out uh, as like a child, though, like a, like a kid reading a kid's book uh, sort of mentality. So when the movie came out, it was it was kind of cool to see, but it was not exactly what I was expecting because, uh, you know, it it's definitely weird. The original book is weird, but this treatment of it, I, I kind of liked. Yeah, I completely forgot that it has, you know, what a good quarter of it is live action, which, uh, again, I haven't seen it since opening night, so I certainly forgot about that. But And it bounces, right? It's live action. There's a little bit of stop motion slash claymation. And then there's also like a weird collage 2D uh like a I, I wrote it well, i wrote it went to terry python. gilliam mode for a few yeah. minutes you know <laughs> yeah exactly like i'm a has a very monty python look to it for for little chunks of time which as far as selling making this movie is a pretty smart way to make it you know cheaper and faster than say nightmare before christmas which looks like an insane amount of money on the screen and in a great way 
Uh, but this one, it's like he's cutting corners, but doing it creatively, I think. Good point. And now, even as you say that, there's lots of close-ups in this movie. And there weren't as many close-ups that I remember from Nightmare Before Christmas. There was lots of like wide, establishing shots where you big see all spectacle sorts of shots. Yeah, big spectacle shots. In this movie, like you might be just staring at a, an extreme close-up of the centipede for minutes at a time, multiple times throughout. That might be where you know Tim Burton's not as involved with this one, so it's a little more like uh, <laughs> everyone can take a pants. breath. Everyone was like, "Hey, we we're not we're not going to hate life after the end of this one. This might actually be okay." No, I, I think I think the stop motion curse from what I've heard is uh, if you if, if you have that job, you're already hating life no matter what. Okay, fair. <laughs> and and one of... one other delineation between uh, Tim Burton and what's what's this guy's name again? Uh, Henry Selleck. Henry Selleck. Now that I said it out loud, I'm <laughs> I'll still forget it. But uh, because now I'm just thinking of Tom Selleck. So so the one other difference too in that this movie I feel and I don't know if this is because of Henry Selleck versus a Tim Burton thing, but Tim Burton has that very hot topic like I'm gonna wear how how occult I am on my sleeve. Notice me. Do you see how do you see how occult I am? Everyone, look at my earrings. Look at my shirt. That's kind of the Tim Burton vibe, I think, in a lot of ways. Whereas this one, it's a little bit more like esoteric occult. And even in the, into the point where it feels like they're bestowing some nods to like real alchemy, real occult wisdom in this movie, way more than almost any Tim Burton movie that I can think of. Or it's, it's way more about the aesthetic. This one, it's a little bit less on the aesthetic, even though it looks really interesting. But it feels like the things that they're talking about and the archetypes are a lot deeper. Yeah, like I think this has more interesting stuff to talk about than Nightmare. To be honest, I like Nightmare better. Uh, one thing is, is I guess the music I like. You know, there's a few bops and uh, the Nightmare Before Christmas. This one, I'm sitting there like, oh, none of the songs really caught with me. And I looked after, and I was like, oh, they they got Randy Newman to do them all, and and outside of Toy Story, I think Randy Newman is just like not my jam. <laughs> <laughs> It works perfectly in Toy Story, of course, because it's got that weird, you know, well, supernatural almost vibe, right? But here it's kind of like, I'm not not buying it. I definitely did not like the I Am James song. And I also noticed that uh, before him, because Disney was like, this is the guy, basically, you know, Mulholland Drive style, I guess. But uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, Andy Partridge of XTC had written and recorded four songs for this movie. I'm like, I don't know if they'd be better or worse, but I'm like, I want to hear Andy Partridge do that i have i have this doesn't surprise me that you've you've got the entire partridge family collection behind you signed that's right signed by them well no joke joke taken but you are you familiar with xtc ecstasy i mean not since the 90s yeah yeah well this was would have been the 90s right so unless are we talking about the drug now or the band Uh, what are you talking about? I'm talking about the band. <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah, me too. No, I, yeah, okay, good. No, but yeah, I mean, I don't know if they would have been better, but yeah, I'm just, I, especially in the 90s, I was a, a, a big fan of them. I, I was actually seeing if I had my little vinyl sleeve things here, but I think they're at the other place. So <laughs> those little vinyl sleeve CD things. But uh, anyway, yeah, music for me was kind of like a, a no-go for this one. I don't know. How did you feel about the tunes? So when the very first one started, which I think is I Am James, That's I was right. like the for the first 10 to 30 seconds, I was like, hey, this 
this isn't bad. It's interesting. It might, and this might even be better than what I was expecting and not the sing songy musical. And then after the 30 second mark, I was like, all right, this kid needs to shut up now. Like I'm, I'm over this already. No, I remember in the theater just slinking in my seat being, oh, I didn't choose a good date movie. <laughs> or maybe yeah, this, I did. I don't know. This but, one didn't uh, didn't get him uh, hot and ready. Well, I just, yeah, it seemed like, uh, you know, I guess I was thinking a little edgier, like Nightmare, right? But uh, which uh, not many people made that mistake because this movie did not make its budget back. So <laughs> again, you thought you were you were bringing her to a hot topic date movie and it wasn't a hot topic date. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, it, it just missed. It was 38 million budget and like 37.7 uh, box office. So once you um, put in marketing, though, I guess that makes us a failure. Which is interesting because Selleck, I mean, he doesn't make movies that often, but he keeps making good movies that like fall on their face. Uh, I guess Coraline did okay, but uh, Monkey Bone was like a massive flop, although I remember liking it when I saw it. I've heard Monkey Bone as being one of the reasons that Brendan Fraser sort of fell off the face of the planet because he had turned down like two or three massive movies because he had already, I guess, signed up for Monkey Bone or had his eye on that instead. And all the movies that he had said no to, like they all ended up being like incredible blockbusters. And Monkey Bone is like the movie that you might pick if you're on like a flight and you're like, okay, I don't know if I've or seen that shrooms. or if I did not remember it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or on shrooms, either, either or. Um, so yeah, and uh, Monkey Bone, I saw Coraline. I never saw, seen. Oh no, I have the Corpse's Bride on on Blu-ray. I'm sitting here, you know, mixing up my Burton and my Selick again, which makes sense because obviously they're in the same ballpark a lot of the time. But um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. This, this one kind of like. I think it's what you're saying with the close-ups too, since it didn't have so many of the wow moments animation wise. I was like, well, I think nightmare had a little bit more. I like the songs better. Um, I intentionally didn't look up the voice cast until after the movie. Cause I was like, Oh, I recognize half of these voices, which is correct. Uh, did you have a, a look at the, the voice cast? I didn't, chance? I didn't look it up and yeah, I, I went on a whole different sort of like a uh, deep dive. No, five I, minutes in, I'm like, there's humunculus cut stuff here. So obviously that's oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, a bunch of stuff came up. And and we're trying to do these now like weekly or bi-weekly and not monthly. So there's a huge difference between how much time we've got to do deep dives into all the different tangents. So on on any movies that are worth like a second look, it might just be worth having, I don't know, like the like the the after party or the supplemental show if if it ever gets that serious. <laughs> So uh, here, here's a few. I mean, you probably recognize Pete uh, Postlewaite, uh, who is, you know, one of, the, one of those guys, uh, character actors, uh, shows up in Usual Suspects, so on, blah, blah. Richard Dreyfus was Mr. Centipede, which makes sense after you've seen the movie. Uh, Susan Sarandon is the spider. So that, that's fun. Uh, oh, Daphne from Frasier was Mrs. Ladybug. Jane leaves. Interesting. And, now I recognize that now. And uh, David Thewlis, uh, who I didn't actually know was that active in the mid '90s. Although I'm going to bring up his week and embarrass myself, but uh, yeah, he was Mr. Earthworm. Okay. Oh, he's he's in like classy films in the late '80s, early '90s. That, that's why I, you know, I don't I, I, I don't watch classy films. 
Right, right. Because I'm like, oh, he didn't show up till Harry Potter, right? Which he was around before that. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, doing classy films I didn't watch. <laughs> but yeah, th- this is definitely like, I think a um, transitionary kind of uh, star cast, you know, like this one still kind of works. Like the voice acting's fine. It's like three years later um, with some Disney, but especially with like the dreams works and stuff. And they're like, don't hire actors that aren't voice actors, you know? The most fun is uh, the movie Epic, where Steven Tyler does a voice. Have you, if you know, I don't I've know never if I've seen Epic. Okay. Anyway, his delivery is like it's so flat. I'm just talking like this. Is Steven Tyler? Like, there's just like nothing to it whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Like, you wouldn't even know it's Steven Tyler, you know, because you'd think, he'd it, be like, and he probably <laughs> thinks that was genius for doing that. Like, no one will know. I was so understated. I was so yeah. understated and cool. <laughs> oh, by the way, I have met Steven Tyler, and he was he. He was, I mean, he was, okay, here we go. I used to work at um, an environmental camp in Maine. Like, kids would come for, like, three days and stay there. Mm. And um, Steven Tyler's kid at the time, about 10 years younger than Liv, I guess, uh, stayed at the camp. And he was there as a chaperone for, like, three days. <laughs> so that was weird. Um, he was spacey as hell, but, yeah, it was kind of fun. The, the thing that he had the kids out on the front porch at midnight singing, which the camp director had to deal with, but I didn't. So I, I guess that wasn't good, but yeah, otherwise. I, I had spacey, a... like under the influence spacey or, or like shot from a lifetime of being a rock star spacey or. Yeah. 20 years of being under the influence. I, I don't think he was there. I don't know. He could have been going in the back room and snorting lines or something, but yeah, someone who just like, kind of like was nice, but had melted their brain pretty completely. <laughs> Sweet. Yeah, which is kind of what you would like from someone like that. I mean, I'm not you don't you don't meet the singer of Aerosmith expecting like um well expect some Wayne's world wisdom, I guess. <laughs> was it we're not worthy? Get up, you're worthy. I mean that was that was a reasonably accurate vibe, I think. Do you think uh Steven Tyler minus twenty years of drugs would have resulted in wisdom? Or do you think he just always because I mean, how old was uh like Bill and Ted, right? They weren't necessarily old enough to have been completely burnt out by just smoking pot for a lifetime, but they also were never going to be on track to become Socrates. The weird thing with Bill and Ted or Wayne's World, though, is they always kind of make it seem like like maybe they don't do anything like that. Maybe they don't smoke or drink. You never yeah. see them doing it, you know? Which yeah, I think is because they knew a lot of kids would be watching it, but at the same time, we're like, these guys are stoned as hell. <laughs> uh, at least you hope so, because if not, then there's much bigger problems afoot. Yeah, so they just came up at an interesting time when, you know, it's like Nancy Reagan's Just Say No and that uh, Saved by the Bell episode with the, the president of NBC showing up, you know. You got that sort of stuff. So Bill and Ted, you can't, you can't get into that. <laughs> Is, was that the No-Dose episode where Jesse gets hopped up on, uh, on caffeine pills? Was it? Was that the one with the mate? I think it's a different no no it's the one where the uh johnny depp guy shows up at the school to make a psa mm, okay and he, he turns out to be a massive stoner that's that's it he's smoking pot mm. at a party oh my god so they flip out and record the most reactionary song possible with the vice we don't do that here for all the kids listening we, drugs are bad don't do drugs nobody nobody cool has ever done them all your favorite musicians have never done them it's all just a big act in Japan, you really don't, though. That that is the a trade up for living in Japan. <laughs> How many uh, worldwide cultural sensations of uh, music and 
and media come out of Japan? Hmm. Yeah, exactly. J-pop's pretty rank. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if you want to watch is that, it, is that what you want to make time. the claim for? Is J isn't J-pop just the knockoff of K-pop, or are those fighting words? I would say K-pop is the knockoff, but it's more sleek at this point, and like more like really K-pop built. is the knockoff of J-pop. Yeah, South Korea was under like weird regimes in the eighties and nineties, and J-pop was already up and rolling. Okay, well, I guess alphabetically, they all it also comes first. So J J-pop like and then at- K-pop. In 2024, yeah, K-pop is definitely the thing, but uh, and J-pop never really made much worldwide inroads because, well, it's not. They that don't great. do enough drugs over there. That's the yeah. that's the point that I'm getting to. But if you can find, it, you probably find it on YouTube. There is a um, the New Year's Eve musical program. It's like four and a half hours long. You wouldn't probably don't want to watch all of it, but uh, every year it's called Kohaku, which is where. It's like the female singers are doing a contest against the male singers. But if you want to see like the state of Japanese music in any given year, it's eh, not a bad place to look. I mean, there's an underground that has cool stuff. So I have seen cool Japanese bands in the States. (laughs) (laughs) Are you big into the underground J-pop scene? They wouldn't call it J-pop at that point. I think it's actually just called Indies. Um, But, I mean, come on, except for a couple of really good exceptions. I mean... The Western Indies probably better. I don't know. I, I've gotten to that old man point where I don't even like bother with much new music anymore. You know, although I am drowning in music, so I guess I don't need to. I just listen to AI music exclusively, so it's a moot point, and it's also awesome because it's completely unrelatable to anyone. Because when someone asks me, "Have you heard this new song?" like the answer is always no, and I already I won't even ask because of course you haven't heard this weird AI AI song about. Uh, Hillary Clinton and Monica Lewinsky teaming up. Well, mostly I'm on the train reading a book and listening to Binaural Beats with the, the 432 stuff. So, you know, brainwashing music. <laughs> but I made it myself. So I'm technically brainwashing myself. I, I know the agenda because I made it. <laughs> just, yeah, just like grandma used to make. That's right. You know, make your own music and you don't have to wonder where it came from. <laughs> make with AI. You do have to wonder about the ghost in the machine, though, don't you? Although, that said making the binaural beats i'm using like you know like the synthesizers on my ipad or something a lot so who knows i mean unless you're inventing your own frequencies you're just reusing other people's frequencies this whole time anyways so yeah well if i go use the i don't if if i use a actual analog synthesizer would you say it's still the case or is that is that a special thing now it's its own instrument did you have have to tune it before you turn it on or is Uh, it auto-tune it uh I have one of the Moogs from like 2004. So basically you'd have to tune it yourself then uh, every so often. Well, yeah, yeah. But um, it's new enough still that basically if you turn it on and wait 30 minutes, it'll be in tune. Mm. Uh, But yeah, when you turn it on, like I haven't used it probably for several months because I, um, if I turned it on now, I'd probably turn on like an hour before I planned on recording with it. (laughs) I mean, what's, what's better or worse? Um, A truly, uh, synthetic sound wave coming from a Moog, or hell, just just make it like a like a CS80 or something even cheesier. But <laughs> if, if it's 432 coming out of a synthesizer versus 440 coming out of like an organic instrument, is it is the 432 still better than the 440? You know, um, 
I, I wouldn't argue for it being better. The only reason I do it is because, well, when you put out the track and say it's 432, people like that. And it doesn't seem to hurt it. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a marketing uh, ploy. <laughs> hey, and also, hey, there could be something to it. I don't right, know. Right, yeah, like, yeah. It's like, the, hey, listen to this song I made and then asterisk, it might cure cancer. We don't know. The jury's out. <laughs> <laughs> Um, anyway, we, we do get drugs very early in James and the Giant Peach, was, which was the first time, first point where I was like, oh, I mean, you, it's rolled doll. There's already something to talk about. But you see that show up, and it's like, oh, there's a lot more. And then what's his name? Pete? Oh, Pete. Pete plays Pete? Okay. No, he plays Pete, the magic Pete. man. He doesn't get a name. I wrote Pete because that's the actor's name. Okay. Well, he's, he's the alchemist. Yeah, and he gives that long explanation. I'm like, that sounds like one of, one of, your, one of the recipes uh, you or Juan read on online you know <laughs> yeah, i mean that's almost how you create a homunculus he get he gets all the way to the end including the moonlight does the rest which is a cult af man i mean that's it, it, as far as i'm aware the using the moon as a source of finishing right as being like the final ingredient that's like some of the most arcane and original magic that humankind has to offer all the way back to the original goddesses you know to knit and the, some of the the legends of lilith which are fairly modern in comparison uh and then like the phoenicians how they would milk the uh the little mollusks under the a full moon in order to get the certain type of purple dye that gave them their name like all of these different aspects of letting the moon do this extra step of work uh and then working backwards from that where he, he gives out all the list of uh, there's like crocodile tongues and you have to cook them in the skull of a dead witch for 20 days or it very specific. I like the, the specifics and all of this. So from the filmmaker's perspective, do, is someone in there like putting in an actual recipe or just trying to be wacky and it just sounds the same? <laughs> Maybe a little bit of both, man, because it didn't, it didn't sound that wacky compared to some real, recipes that you might uncover in a grimoire like none of yeah, and it sounded legit <laughs> all, all the way down like even the crocodile tongues crocodiles were incredibly um they were like highly coveted for use in alchemical and magical rituals in fact if you go and look at the old images of images but like sketches of john d and edward kelly and a lot of other uh, like Paracelsus, a lot of those dudes, they would have these crocodiles hanging on the ceiling inside their little laboratories. So almost, they're basically, the implication was that if you were an alchemist worth even mentioning in a book, you had a crocodile somewhere in your, you know, pantry. And then James then proceeds to, you know, trip all the balls all the way to New York City, if that's where he really is in the end. Um, here, here's what I thought of uh, watching it last night. Do you ever go on Arrowhead and dot uh, org and start reading people's bad drug trips? Yeah, I mean it's been a couple decades since I've been on that site, but yeah, I mean I, I used to go there all the time and just read through everything. Like, yeah, I love that. Shout out to uh, Arrowhead dot org. Anyway, yeah, I was thinking of um, you know my buddy and I. We used to to like to get up get on there late at night and and look up you know tales of Datura, like Datura train wrecks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, angel those... trumpets. Yeah, because uh, those were just, all, you know, people smoking fake cigarettes. Ending, most of the stories ended in the hospital or jail, you know, <laughs> or naked in the middle of the street. So that just started, I, I felt like that was kind of James's trip here, you know. 
I mean, you're, I don't think you're totally off base, except for that Datora. And I, I, I'm going to get this wrong. I think Hycosamine is one of the ingredients in it. Um, but, but some of those, those like effects is just pure terror. Like if you look at the MK ultra training and their use of that, it usually, the whole point was to put somebody into a state of, of complete terror and panic and unrest. And then you can kind of be the guiding light of like, Hey, I'm another human. Don't worry. You know, like you'll get through this just kill this president or or whatever you know fill in the mm. gap between here and there but that was essentially the it. ants it wasn't... will stop crawling on you once you take out the senator pretty pretty <laughs> much man it, it was not like oh we'll just put him into a trance and hypnotize him this this was the scary part of of truth serum style drugs right <laughs> so uh how, how did you read james's experience i mean i'm just sitting here like oh yeah it's like a really whack drug trip and hey, again, terror is bugs crawling on you, and I guess James just takes it better, you know? <laughs> I think so. I mean, I think that it, he either ingests magic or he ingests drugs. The drug is just a more literal and more obvious, I guess, metaphor for it. But, I mean, he's talking to this alchemical wizard dude, although you might just say that if this guy's got all these fancy words, I think that when they talk, the crocodile tongue maybe is real, but the rest of the stuff about boiling it in the skull of a dead witch, I think all of those are just references to like actual alchemical processes that you can't just say out loud. And I don't think that in this particular movie, like that exact example of, of boiling something in the skull of a, I don't think that translates directly to a real formula somewhere. Maybe it does. Uh, I think that one's kind of a little bit of, of Hollywood, like tongue in cheek. But this concept was that you wouldn't want to tell someone the real recipe for something because they can go and do it at home. Uh, and it's almost like you know, that Rockefeller, you know, medicine patent technology where uh, I'm going to hide it from you by telling you everything's the eye of a new or, you know, the tail of a camel or something wacky just because that's my code word for this. So I've, I've got that, and so I've, there's a there's a couple tracks on here. So James is either on a drug trip or a magic trip. I don't think it matters between the two because that's not really the focus. How long do you think his trip is? Uh, at least seven to twelve hours, I would say. Okay, I was just gonna say if we could stretch it to three days, you'd get you know pyramid initiations in there. But that that maybe maybe. Uh, I mean, honestly, if, if you're doing the Torah, although I don't know how the worm translates to to being the Torah. If it's the Torah, I could understand a seventy-two hour trip, maybe. But also, he's way too calm. Like that, like he would be he'd be in jail at the end of a three-day uh, trip <laughs> on angel trumpets. I think so. It's it's probably something else. But I, but I think the other two tracks here is one, to me, I kept reading NLP out of almost everything going on in this movie from the very moment it started. It was like, man, it seems like these are like overt memory techniques or NLP techniques or just like brainwashing techniques. And, I, and I've got specific examples, so it doesn't have to stay vague. And then the second part of that one um, was just that it's this, this other story of MK Ultra mind control. Uh, which I, I guess it ties directly to NLP, but in some ways it's about like this trauma based and it follows this Disney proxy again, too. Like right off the bat, uh, you know, Jameson's parents die within like the first five minutes of the movie. And also um, we've all, we've seen this setup, a very similar setup in The Rescuers. 
Like that's well, where the rescuers was was being kidnapped, right? Right. In that case, they were kidnapped. It was kind of the same scam uh, being run with the aunts, I guess. So yeah, a little different. That's uh, in that case, just straight villains here. It's your villainous aunts, but I where the aunts come from. They just say they're aunts. I don't know. I did notice their teeth weren't British. If I were the animator, I would have made their teeth all nasty and gnarled. But they actually, their teeth were fine. Uh, one of the ants, maybe. Um, I'm, <laughs> I'm curious. Maybe I just wasn't paying close enough attention. And this is the kind of thing that if we have like another week or two, like I might just watch it like two or three more times and like really like nail this down. But what is the rules behind James being a real boy and turning into a claymation boy and turning into uh, a paper Terry Gilliam money Python boy, because I was trying to figure out like, is there a certain mechanic? Is it when he gets so far away from the peach that he turns into a real boy, which for practical reasons is part of it, but it didn't seem like there was any rhyme or reason as to when he goes in and out of these different states of reality. The, that might be the boring answer of production realities. Uh, apparently, Selleck did want him to be live action all the time, but that was just so many technical hurdles. They're like, nah, it's going to be so much easier just to animate him when he's with the bugs and stuff. So um, the intention actually was to have the live actor and all of that stuff. But that would look horrible. The, that would look absolutely hard. Just thinking back it with the technology bad. they had hard. with... Mm-hmm. And and now when you even just see the a level of production quality they were able to achieve with doing the the shortcut version and doing a close up on you know Mr. Centipede for four minutes, like I don't even want to know what the version of now let's put a live action boy ver- what right. is that green screen we're talking about. We're talking late 90s green screen in addition to this? I don't know. I mean, three years later, they still couldn't make that work with The Phantom Menace where they had, you know, like all the cutting edge tech. Don't talk bad about Phantom Menace. But there, I mean, you can like it or not, but especially when good actors are just, you know, they haven't done green screen before. And when you're making Natalie Portman and uh, Ewan McGregor somewhat flat, um, you got to work out those techniques a little more. (laughs) (laughs) Because usually they're both uh, very electric on screen, and they're not so electric in those movies. Uh. <laughs> so I'll, I'll I'll rapid fire through my notes on the movie because I got most of my notes on just Roald uh, Roald Dahl in general uh, outside of this movie, and then leading up to it. So I guess this is our only Disney hit with him. I, I mean, hit is in like Disney did it. The movie wasn't a hit, but because Matilda's well, did, Fox, did, I think. Willy did Wonka you look at Gremlins? Have Warner you Brothers. have you heard about Gremlins before? What like the movie Gremlins? Oh, so we're gonna yeah we're gonna get into a really interesting uh, Gremlins line on here. the plane. Okay, I mean I yeah, dude, I... Gremlins on the plane. Yeah, it's I'm telling you, this is gonna be an interesting one. Yeah, I have a Twilight Zone podcast too. So I, yes, I, I know both varieties of Gremlins, including the World War II ones. We can also go back to. But uh, well, that, we're gonna we're line. gonna go right to that towards the end here because there's a whole there's a whole tangent that links, believe it or not, James and the Giant Peach directly to. Twilight Zone, Gremlins on the Plane. And yeah, it's not sure, a stretch. Right. It's, it's a direct connection. I haven't gotten to that episode of the Twilight Zone yet either. So We're, we're going to get there. Have, have you never well. seen it or you just haven't covered it? Oh, I've it? seen it. We okay, just yeah. haven't covered it. We're, we're about to start season four on that show. And, and, and another thing or... that I, I guess I just I missed it entirely and I feel bad because this is key uh, symbolism, but I haven't been able to pin down the rhinoceros in a description that satisfies everything that i want to know about it 
Yeah, I would definitely wasn't picking up where you get a sky rhinoceros that kills your parents. Um, and it, it, you know what it made me think of in a weird way? The, the Guardians of the Galaxy thing where Yondu kept saying, they wanted to eat you, but I didn't let them eat you. And now you're like forever <laughs> indebted to me. Like That's how it kind of felt like with the... Uh, with with the aunts and the rhino's gonna come for you if you yep. step out of line. It was kind of the same, I guess NLP, like you said. But I'm thinking, you know, Yondu instead. Uh, well, that NLP. one is is probably more MK Ultra than NLP. So like, so yeah. my my examples at NLP is in the very opening scene when he's with his parents and the in the whole three minutes before Disney kills him off because that's what that's what we do. <laughs> uh, and and actually it was doll in this case, but Disney. So the they're talking about all the things they see in the sky and the dad's saying that like he sees a castle or he sees a tower. It's essentially the empire state building New York, which kind of dates this, uh, to being, I guess, early 19 or mid 1900s, maybe like Do they 30, call it 40s. the tallest building in the planet, which when this movie was made was definitely not the case. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. So, but yeah, it for the little kid, you know, you, you lie to kids and, and he eats it up, but he can't see it. And the, and the dad gives him a very specific line, and he's like, try looking at it another way. And then he turns his head and he sees it. Uh, but just to have that be almost like the opening mantra for this movie, when it, it opens up and the first, the, the first like line of any significant value is try looking at it another way, that's the concept of NLP reframing, where you take a, an observation or a certain perspective and you intentionally completely change your perspective. You try to like, you know, take a 45 degree switch or a 90 degree switch. And in order to do that, he literally changes his head and tilts at 90 degrees. So I, even if this isn't a movie where they were intentionally trying to teach NLP, just like the, the exact things that happen, like this is how you train somebody in NLP. I mean, with NLP, there's a certain amount of, yes, you can learn the methods, blah, blah, blah. There's also a certain amount of people just trialing and airing, you know, their relations or interactions with other people. You kind of stumble into some of them, too, you know? Yeah, well, all NLP is is, is basing a model off of successful uh, communication interactions. So if you, they, they basically just go and study people that are very successful at communicating, and they figure out how that happens. And guess what? One of the most successful ways of communicating is by storytelling so there's a lot of overlap between storytelling and nlp uh, and as we're gonna see in military intelligence uh, another huge aspect of this here so and roald Dahl was military intelligence another very interesting ongoing theme that keeps popping its head up in all these damn children's stories Oh, yeah. And just, I mean, also, you know, like James Bond, stuff like that. You had these, this, you know, group of guys in the 40s in England that were just uh, doing some weird stuff. <laughs> a little bit of occultism here, a little bit of uh, spying over there, a little bit of getting the uh, United States into a war with, you know, the rest of the world there. You know, just, <laughs> just typical children's author kind of stuff. Fun and games, yes. Uh Anyway, you, you said you wanted to bop, you wanted to like what lightning round your notes there? Yeah, yeah, just because I've got a whole bunch of other ones that are outside the movie. Um, so another one too is that we start out and he's dreading his new existence because before he just got to lay back and dream and stare at the clouds and just do mind games, right? He just got to play in like the, the mental world 
with his parents. And that's where they were talking about. It was all about imagine what's in this other land and what do you see in the sky? And then as soon as they get killed off and he goes with the ants, they're all about the mundane world. So they're all about uh, pull weeds and clean and work, work, work. So it's this complete transition. And they even tell him literally like, no, like you're not dreaming anymore. And they tear up all of the maps, but he's, he has it so firmly implanted in his mind that he could just go and he finds like a piece of garbage and he licks the inside of this bag and he, and he opens it up and he redraws the entire map from memory again, man, it feels like a, a nod to NLP slash memory techniques. It almost seems that this map becomes this memory palace for him, uh, which is another NLP slash intelligence kind of nod to it. I also had a slight tangent where I don't even want to go down too much, but maybe they're all drug addicts. This also describes like James is the moocher that's not bringing any money. He's not throwing down on the next re-up and the ants are the ones that are spending all the money on the drugs. They do all the drugs and then James comes in and he doesn't have any money to contribute. So they just give him like the bag to lick on the inside of, but he doesn't want that. They try to give him fish scale. He doesn't want the fish scale. So that, that's a separate thread but i feel like that one has enough merit to be worth uh, exploring more and they look pretty scagged out of course i mean that you i know, mean which could also be a design choice but they, they, there's a they, there's they a lot more to that flushed out look you know of a if someone... if you rewatch james <clears throat> and the giant peach and you imagine that it's essentially requiem for a dream uh meets Coraline, it, it makes sense like james is is a drug addict and the ants are also drug addicts. It's a very tragic story because he's still a kid. Uh, but I mean, kids can be drug addicts, right? That it doesn't. Yeah. It's not ageist. So In the can, um, oh, go ahead. So I was just gonna. I was gonna. I had the list too of what the alchemist said. But what were you gonna say? Oh, I was just gonna say I. I did note that in the book, the ants are killed in England by the peach. Like it rolls over them, and they die. They don't come to New York City. So they are tied to this movie version a little bit more tightly, maybe to give it like a closing and a climax, but right. I get that's the only payoff at the end is that there's some comeuppance in a way I get the, the ending's weird too, where they just like weave them into this little spider web net thing. And then the cops are like, Oh, now I get it. They're bad guys. And it was like, you didn't get it like all the way leading up. And I don't know. It was weird. Well, it's children's logic, right? A Spider-Man guy, and they must be bad guys. Yes, yeah, right. <laughs> so, so here's the the actual alchemical list, in case anyone's really interested. But it was a thousand crocodile tongues boiled in the skull of a dead witch for twenty days and twenty nights, fingers of a young monkey, the gizzard of a pig, the beak of a parrot, and three spoonfuls of sugar. And then you let it stew for a week and let the moon do the rest. I mean, that 100% sounds like a homunculus, uh, you know, recipe list for something that Juan and I would be talking about from the 1600s. Yeah, I, you know, making my notes last night, I realized maybe I don't quite know how to spell that word. So because I had to write in my notes like eight times. <laughs> uh, homunculus? I wrote H-U-M-U-N-C-U-L-U. -U -U. All my vowels are U's. Is that correct? Uh, pretty sure, except there might be an O at the very end. No, it's H-O, and then everything okay. else with a U. 
Okay, I wasn't sure about that first vowel, so it, lo it looks good. I it's it was not, like, it's uh, not humunculus; it's homunculus. But yeah, the rest right. Of okay. The okay, even better is is he who um, specializes in homunculology would be a homunculologist, which is not easy to say the first time. Humuncu, yeah, it's hard. I, I was I to rock it out. Humunculology. If if you're a homunculologist, you specialize in homunculology. It's not easy to so say quickly. They can take that recipe because uh, I. I <laughs> certainly don't have the patience or uh nose for it <laughs> so an another nlp borderline i guess nlp mk ultra in this case is kind of interchangeable but nlp where when he meets the alchemist alchemist tells him you'll never be miserable again james you are miserable aren't you james and the way that he says that you are miserable and then aren't you there's two really powerful elements there the first one is that you're implanting a command like you are miserable matt if you just take that as its oh, own no. way like me <laughs> saying you are miserable matt and then when it's like aren't you now because there's this power dynamic between this older alchemist and this young child that's you know disney proxy style scared parents are dead everything the fact that he's saying aren't you it's like uh he is now in instilling this like asking for validation so aren't you it's very rare for a kid to be to say no to like disagree and cause a conflict there if anything they're just trying to get along so they're just like oh yeah yeah of course so now now you're agreeing that you're just miserable constantly anyway it's very very powerful form of nlp might like the true nlp mind control is just to go up to someone and tell them how they're feeling and then fra phrase it as a question yeah i mean like i guess that's a daw thing because I, I i don't know if that's exactly the dialogue that's in the book because i haven't read the book for 30 years but um you know willy wonka does that sort of same thing quite a bit uh i think in matilda uh even the movie version with uh, danny devito and and rio perlman like same thing in there. Like you get that dialogue in all of these uh, Daw stories, and I think there's some more. There's some more uh, intelligence connections that explain some of that. Another one, <laughs> I made this note because he's with his parents, and then they get killed off, and then the ants in like the first scene because he's he's sleeping, and they're like, "It's four minutes of daylight. You're sleeping in. You're so worthless. No one's ever gonna love you." This is like typical break somebody's entire character down and make them reliant on you. Uh, you know, this is just like a lifetime movie abuser recipe. But <laughs> um, his dream is to go to New York City. And I'm just thinking like, yeah, kid, go to New York City where no one will ever tell you that you're worthless. Like everything, <laughs> it'll just all be, you know, bright, bright skies from there forward. I don't know if, if he's really uh, has the real New York City in mind here. Yeah, I like I like New York City. I like hanging out there. I liked to in the past, but it's not. Yeah, it doesn't welcome you like they welcome strangers. Parents. Don't just want walk up to you and tell you like how great you are, or if they do, it it's, it seems like it's sarcastic, or maybe they're stealing your wallet. I guess you got to make a, a big splash and land in a giant peach on top of the Empire State Building for that kind of reception. Oof. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, in a post nine eleven world, I don't I don't recommend anyone trying to. Uh, smash their giant peach into anything it could be seen as an outside threat it'll it, it doesn't turn out good for us at least with your flock we gotta take our, we'll have to take our shoes off it's like a whole thing that was that was my disappointment james didn't rock a flock of seagulls haircut 
<laughs> that's the cool that's probably the coolest thing that happens in the entire movie is where they go fishing for seagulls to pull the the big peach and i remembered that scene as a kid seeing it being much longer and much cooler and now rewatching it it was just like oh like it, it just happens really quickly 10 seconds and they keep going uh but it's the coolest part it's the coolest 10 seconds of the movie yeah yeah i can go with that um I, I had forgotten that the peach does that, so it was slightly surprising. Um, I did notice what, what it's a shark sub that's chasing them. What what is that thing? Yeah, what it's a sky rhinoceros. What is the, what is that? What's okay, a sky, sky rhinoceros. rhinoceros. And then, well, I did notice that the uh, the shark looked kind of like sub. the Nautilus from Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. Kind of had that a little bit of that vibe, which uh, you know that could just be like a callback because they're making it for disney but i've again i feel like there there might be some mind control elements here especially that that nautilus show yeah i mean you got well you got nemo and his uh he's definitely a bit of a cult leader so <laughs> what else another nlp is the ants tell him explicitly don't think of going near that peach Another classic NLP mind control tactic of like, don't think about a white elephant, you know? And it's like, okay, <laughs> like now because, because you hear the word and it has to go through your ear and through your brain to translate into what I'm saying, it's a very rare chance that by telling someone, don't think about a pink dolphin right now, you better not think of a pink <laughs> dolphin. Like, of What's course, like you're going to think of it. And also, um, besides making you think of something, something the difference between um, leave the door open versus don't shut the door. Leave the door open, everything suggests the door is open. Don't shut the door. 75% of that actually leaves the idea of you shutting the door in your head, you know? Right. That Yeah, another NLP tactic. Where Because the, the easiest way to figure out if there's embedded commands, and that's the actual term in NLP terminology is an, an embedded command, so if you can just dissect a phrase up and just take words off the front and take words off the back, you don't rearrange them. You just you just take them and leave them where they're at. But in the phrase like don't shut the door, all you got to do is drop the word don't off. And now you've got an embedded command of shut the door. Uh, so now that's the real command that gets into somebody's head. And this isn't just for... I guess, breaking people down and turning them into Manchurian candidates. This is also if you're, I don't know, getting your kid to do something. No, it's about but, to say, I do NLP stuff almost every day because I teach you're, kids. You're you know? programming your children with NLP, you monster. But no, I know there's a lot of times, like if I want <laughs> them to respond a certain way in class, I should say it this way, you know, and that's, uh, you know, I don't have you, a You don't tell them what not them, to do, which... yeah itself is a is a i guess ironic phrase because you're telling someone not to do it anyways but and just little things like i mean some of it's experience some of it's habits some of it's knowing how the kids react every week but that, that's i mean that's you know low grade nlp basically i don't want them jumping up down their chair screaming which i think is a reasonable behavior to uh uh you know curtail when when you're trying to have a class <laughs> So that uh, I, I I'm proud. I think that's a good NLP ism is don't and don't ever tell anyone what not to do. <laughs> I like that. Now you're getting into double negatives. So I like I mean negatives. That, that's, NLP, that's NLP classic NLP <laughs> <Yes>. man <laughs> playing games. Um, what else? 
uh, oh yeah, don't so don't think about that peach. And then there's another. This one's a little bit odd, but the worm says that he's got exquisite hearing, and then immediately the centipede starts screaming in his ear, uh, almost. And like they know each other, so this probably has happened before. And I couldn't not think of that crazy scene in uh, Fred. Is it Freddy's Nightmare or Freddy? Where they go and kill Freddy, and the kid like has the the hearing aid, and Freddy just like screams and puts his his claws on like a chalkboard. I just that's imagine four, that that's yeah. what this dude was doing. I don't remember which one. That's three. The Dream Warriors are. are dream it wasn't Masters. Dream Warriors. Okay, maybe it's four then. Which Masters? Maybe I, I, yeah. It's been a little while since I did my my Elm Streets. I wanna I I wanna rewatch those this year. Oh yeah, I'm not a horror fan, but I'm always I'm always up for for some for some Freddy. I don't think Freddy counts. I don't know if Freddy counts as I mean body horror a little bit, but yeah. Uh, and you then the, the other the last note I had here was there's a song or at least him saying that I'm crazy about mosquitoes on a piece of buttered toast, and I just imagine Klaus Schwab is just like standing ovation somewhere as this is playing. <laughs> clap. A, yeah, yeah, just a, like a, an outstanding golf clap as as children are listening. Like, oh yeah, mosquitoes and butter toast. Maybe that's not so bad. <laughs> um, I should note I did while watching this. I, I did not have the MPL and MPL thought uh, Neuralin NLP thought. So the only uh, quote I actually wrote down is "I'll rip out your thorax." So <laughs> very specific. Yeah, yeah. And and I, I guess that that doesn't count as true threats of violence because it's a bug anatomy, right? Like if he said, "I'll rip out your throat" or "I'll rip out your eyes," that might have been over the line for Disney. But <laughs> or, and and is that just because they're insulting the intelligence of the audience, or is it because they found an actual loophole here where like you can kill bugs? Here's a nerd. I didn't. Uh, I mean, it's not. I wrote a long time once. I think. Um, James is like, oh, I was back home a long time once. I'm like, that was 12 hours ago. It's like he's, you know, programming himself by that point. Like, I'm so far away. It's like, you were there 12 hours ago, man. <laughs> um, Again, man, everything that seems weird in this movie can be explained by either mind control or drug use. Yeah, although I guess there's a fair amount of movies where if, if you're, like, getting the unreliable narrator, you know, drug use is now, like, <laughs> pretty easy. Um go to for that so, yeah, I mean, so we, we see him eat um this like tainted peach flesh right with like a glowing worm and he starts tripping out immediately so i don't i feel like this one's not leaning into drug use for unjust causes uh do you have more notes on uh, specifically on the movie before you you take the tangent road no not not on the the movie okay let's tangent it then all right, I got I got a whole other set of notes, and I'll I'll keep these ones fairly brief. So, I was asking about gremlins, uh, because in doing some of this research, this is a wild one where I don't know exactly where to start. So actually, here let's see. So, let's do a quick little Roald doll, um, like a quick little bio overview. So, he joins the Royal Air Force, nineteen thirty nine. He gets stationed in Kenya, trained in Iraq, and then in 1940, he's he's basically a fighter pilot in uh, Libya. He crashes his gladiator plane into the desert, and he suffers crazy injuries. So as he's 
um, recovering from these injuries, he gets stationed in Washington, D.C. Now, he's in the Royal Air Force, right? He's a, he's a Brit, and he's getting stationed in D.C., and now he's working in Washington, D.C. Um, as like a, a liaison, essentially. But he's for British intel at this point, and America hasn't entered the war yet. So long story short, without getting all the intricacies, he's, he becomes this like agent of trying to get America to enter the war. And he schmoozes up to Eleanor Roosevelt. He becomes like a bestie of Eleanor freaking Roosevelt, starts hanging out at her favorite place to go to, which is a, a, a little cottage called Val Killa, which interesting name in its own right which we'll have to do a deep dive on some other thing but he ends up becoming good enough friends that now he's got the the ear of eleanor roosevelt and through that he basically has the ear of fdr uh so there's a very strong case that Roald Dahl caused the united states to get into world war ii yeah or and i mean again tell how far in advance did Roosevelt know it was coming as well? I mean, this stuff still happens today. I, I think with the, uh, the the Gaza war last year, it's like, oh, actually, Israeli intelligence knew about this for a while. Right, but but imagine the difference between <laughs> FDR getting his briefing in the White House and you know all the advisors and they're bickering and fighting, giving all this in- information, versus when he goes to bed at night and his wife's just like you know we really should get into this war honey because she's getting fed the same line from Roald Dahl during the day <laughs> and he's the dude that's keeping her occupied like i i really feel like there's m- way more than a non-zero there there's like a, a high chance that the dude that wrote James and the Giant Freaking Peach was behind uh you know the the crumbling of american anti-interventionalism like this might have come to a complete crumble because of james and the giant peach yeah well it, i mean this was a network that's why i brought up ian fleming earlier wasn't he part of basically the same british exactly operation yeah no it, it was it was basically without putting a name on it because i'm not an expert and i don't even know if that's ever been revealed but whatever program or whatever dynamic put Roald Dahl into this intelligence agency and then into children's books and mass media. Kind of the same thing with Ian Fleming. Um, when did... So, yeah, I, I did not get as deep into Dahl uh, getting ready for this one. I, I've read stuff on him before, but it's been a few years. But uh, when, when did these books come out? I'm thinking the 50s. Did he put anything out in the 40s? So so this is the this was going to be the next note was the... Roald Dahl got his first big approach to writing in general um, because he re- he wrote this story called Gremlins that was about him as he was a pilot and the Gremlins were were like this known entity that would just mess with um, like your engine. They would just break things and it would cause people to die or have close calls with death when they're up in the air. So this, this um, story about Gremlins is what originally fascinated Eleanor Roosevelt. Um, it also fascinated Walt Disney, and this is where Walt Disney and Roald Dahl, they cross paths. This is, I believe, the first thing that Roald Dahl um, really kind of put out in a, in a big way, and they planned on making a whole movie out of this, but it just it never panned out. It did turn recently, last 10 years or so, I think. Dark Horse Comics made a th- like a three-issue limited series called The Return of the Gremlins, and this is sort of like if if Disney had pursued it originally, this is kind of what it may have been. But 
so Royal Dahl writes this book about gremlins and he gets it gets deep enough that he defines like these three different types of gremlins where you've got like the male gremlins which are the twilight zone like I'm going to mess up your engine and everyone's dying because I'm going to destroy everything then you've got female gremlins which might be a little more neutral uh, and, not, and not bad and then you've got baby gremlins and they all have names and they all do certain things but this story they it captured the attention of all of them and then through this is where Roald Dahl was then able to do Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, James and the Giant Peach, Matilda that all spawned from this original story that really was about his personal experience and perhaps belief in like these occult entities messing with engine parts. Yeah. I mean, so, so this is all early forties because again, this is all relates to his entry and getting America into world war two. That's what I'll say. You don't have to leave in the forties. What was it? Uh, Nancy Reagan had her chief astrologer and, uh, George W. Bush was pretty sure that the world was going to come to an end during his term. Well, and, and a link there, too, is that when Nancy Reagan um, had the seances in the White House, one of those seances is that she tried to and, and claimed to have contacted Eleanor Roosevelt. Who would try and convince Nancy Reagan to get into World War Two? Sorry, <laughs> right. taking the taking the same take wrong takeaway there. Okay, yeah, she she <laughs> very one track mind. Everyone that ever talked to Eleanor Roosevelt, she just like tries to get you into World War Two. She doesn't Why quite she understand it that. How? Yeah, it's like God, this lady with the World War Two. Jeez. <laughs> uh, so uh, I, I mean, I can keep going, but um, so. At the end of his spy career, and I'm curious, does your spy career ever really end? Like, how does it officially end? Does you the end government the just village, contact you? Like in The Prisoner. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, if, if if you die or they imprison you or something, <laughs> I guess that's an indication that it's over. But it feels like it ne- you don't just gracefully part ways and you're like, okay, I'm just going to go write children's books now. We're, d- we're done with the military intelligence and all the insider info. It's always like, like, can you do us a favor? Yeah. You're already there. <laughs> and so um, so I just came across this book, and so there's a book called The Irregulars, Roald Dahl and the British Spy Ring in Wartime Washington. It was written maybe uh, 15 years ago or so. And this is the only book that I found that actually details more of like the, the specific you know, technical notes and names and dates and places about Roald Dahl and being part of British intelligence. But again, man, like what what are the freaking odds of all of these Disney movies and popular books being linked to British intelligence? Like it 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 feels like it's more than just a complete coincidence roll of the dice at this time at this point. Roll of the doll. I think I think that is the book I read actually. Now I'm gonna see if I can find the cover, but it was like five or six years ago. So the regulars. Yeah, yeah, that's why I'm having these like hazy memories of wasn't Ian Fleming involved with that too? <laughs> so and so some of the notes about the Gremlins book, and I, I want to read the comics here. I'm gonna try and find it. They're going for like thirty dollars an issue now, so I'll, I'll have to f- figure it out. Even the combined version that you get on Amazon is going for like fifty bucks. There's no way for three comics about, but I'm interested. So he describes these uh, three different types of Gremlins, and they are called gremlins themselves widgets and widgets are the female gremlins and then something called spandules or spandules and those are baby gremlins so 
I guess it's very specific as to just even having names for the different types of gremlins that are in here. Do you know when that Twilight Zone um, episode came out? Like what year? Uh, sixty. Let's see, sixty-two is where we are now. Sixty. Uh, sixty-four, most likely. Okay, so 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 Gremlins is nineteen forty-three. So clearly, Roald Dahl was the first one to at least popularize the concept of these gremlins um between him and uh i guess was it rod sterling that wrote that episode as well do you know i believe I'll, I'll double check i believe he did write that one sir uh, so i sterling, wonder if yeah. there's a, a direct connection here i wonder if uh rod sterling read or knew about roald Dahl's gremlins or if that just predated another one but again like the it wasn't that Roald Dahl wrote about gremlins and then Ro- Roosevelt and, ever- and Disney was like, oh, yeah, I've heard of these things. Like, that's cool. It was like, oh, wow, what a novel idea that there's gremlins causing all of these engine parts. And it wasn't that Roald Dahl came up with that idea. He even said that that was just like a popular thing amongst all the pilots is they talked about these gremlins that would affect the engine. But he kind of brought that idea into pop culture. Uh, that episode was written by Richard Matheson, a, a pretty major sci-fi writer who did several Twilight Zones. Um, although Serling himself was like a paratrooper in the Philippines, so like that, the, the interesting thing is he was like he didn't know that pilots called the dusk dawn moments the Twilight Zone, but he was in the back of the plane where they were probably using that term and might have you know just kind of like heard it and had it drift into his subconscious. Well, Twilight Zone was also uh, an MK Ultra reference. So when they were doing the uh, the early days of all sorts of coma research, they found a way that you could uh, the first person that they put into an artificial coma, like an, like an induced coma, that the doctor that came up with that technique, he called it Twilight Zone. That was the name of that that process, which again predates the TV show Twilight Zone. So I always wondered too if there might have been a connection there if it was in Oh the- sure. The first episode episode one of the Twilight Zone is Where Is Everybody, which is extremely MK Ultra. Like uh I without I spoiling it I guess in case you want to watch it. Yeah. But uh yeah, yeah, that one is just it's like as MK Ultra you could get on a TV show in nineteen fifty nine. overtly so, at least. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's a where is everybody if anyone wants to search that one down. Good, Not the best episode, but a pretty good one. It's the first one, so you wouldn't expect the first to be the best. <laughs> uh, and then, and then, yeah, just the other note was that the Gremlins was supposed to be a full-length feature animated film that they were going to make with Walt Disney. It just, it just never happened, but that would have been wild, man. That would have been a really interesting Disney. So, so the, the collaboration between Roald Dahl and Disney goes all the way back to 1943. And that would throw in the whole, you know, like, because I was like, well, the dead parents is also a doll thing, but if it's kind of baked in, you know, from the 40s. Right. It's, it's really hard to separate those two now, especially when you consider that Roald Dahl only wrote every other book and story after Gremlins. So once, so once he, he writes Gremlins, uses that as a way to um, exert influence on the United States, you know, to get them into World War II, but it also gives him this in to Walt Disney. So every other Roald Dahl work after Gremlins in 1943 potentially has that Disney proxy 
uh, knowledge bestowed on him. Maybe, maybe Disney just pulled him into a dark room and was like, listen, kid, you want to make money? You kill the parents. There you go. That's <laughs> it. <laughs> and then we have it working the other way, which we're, we watched Victory Through Air Power, where Wad is very overtly trying to influence geopolitical affairs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and not hiding it. <laughs> <laughs> Which uh, I, I guess Disney gets a little more more slick about it these days. I was just talking with a, a friend yesterday how, you know, with pre- and I'm sure you've discussed this with people, with the whole predictive pro- programming thing. And, you know, just a year before pandemic, we get the whole Marvel, the blip, where everything's going to get screwed up for five years, you know? <laughs> I mean, it's just not as overt anymore. And. And there was that the Obama produced movie too, which was actually pretty decent. It's kind of that same premise of a but, it, but it's like a long term blip. I don't think it's just five years. It's like blip, and then everything goes to hell forever. Oh, okay, that's no good. <laughs> that's the more that's the glasses completely empty version of the story, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe or or yeah, the 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 glass you'll never be able to trust again because the glass could come from China or Iran or AI or who knows. And do you trust any AI cup? It's an AI cup. Yeah. Demolition man style photography. It's it's a cup real. Yeah. (laughs) There is no cup. So, and Uh, on the, the tail of that too, we were talking about Disney. It's an interesting dynamic that Disney now owns the concept of space, but they've always owned the concept of space. This is came up on a, on a conversation I was having recently where someone pointed out that with, Toy Story and Buzz Lightyear and Star Wars um, and just Disney's basically acquiring all these different long-term IPs that they kind of have a stranglehold on what people consider as like being space. But I also pointed out that they did that too with Paperclip, right? Because they got Werner Von Braun uh, like right out of the gate. So Disney has always kind of been the gatekeepers of what the the rest of the world at least america but i'd say the rest of the world sees as being space like they control that narrative yeah more than NASA does yeah i'm an ardent trekkie and that's a slightly different view but you know that's a little bit niche isn't it (laughs) well well trekkie is uh space communism and that i would almost i would almost say space com illuminati communism because it's like a big secret society and and the prime directive also says that like you don't you don't interfere until a certain planet has reached a certain level of like enlightenment kind of that's illuminati af man that's like we're not going to tap you to be in the skull and bones unless we know that you're getting a's or something that's a bad analogy but it feels (laughs) very elitist it feels very selective so you're just going to let people you know starve and and live in abject poverty just because they haven't become enlightened yet, even though you can print food. Like, you could just print food indefinitely forever, right? Like, that's that's one of the technologies they've got in Star Trek, yet they won't use that technology to go and help people unless they've proven themselves first. It's it's not real communism, but that's space communism. To, to their credit, that is often a uh, plot device in episodes <laughs> than what you were just describing. Like, so... <laughs> Where, you know, the, the captain throws away the prime directive, but that's just, you know, I mean. Well, and also you, the Omega directive, which states that I think it's, isn't it called the Omega directive? Am I getting uh, something like right that? Now? It's the Omega something. Is that where, where Lincoln shows up and makes a speech or something? 
this so this is the secret society that i think they they hint at it in deep space nine and maybe some future ones but there's like a like a secret ai system that controls like the cia of star trek and the the secret ultimate top secret program is that they're not all they can't let the borg get a hold of this substance i'm going to call it unobtainium right now uh from avatar i don't remember what they call it in star <laughs> trek but there's this like substance that if the board gets a hold of it they can just like control all of reality to oversimplify it so no matter what if you're in star trek and you see that the borg might get a hold of this or you see that there's um like a source to this material you have to drop everything you're doing it doesn't matter if you're about to see lee harvey oswald shoot space jfk You've got to let him do his thing and put all of your resources towards getting this material and destroying it just so the Borg doesn't get it. And that's like this secret thing. It's like we're always for the advancements of peaceful, you know, yeah, 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 except we can kill you if it means that we can get our hands on this unobtainium and destroy it and get but it away from the Borg. Let's see a section 31, which... I do know, you know, uh, I, I talk right. That's yeah, 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 yeah that's and that is one thing that they're like kind of getting burned because they're like, wait a minute, section thirty-one has been there the whole time. Then that's yeah. even <laughs> yeah, the idealistic, you know, sixties trek. Section thirty-one was still in the background there, and th and now you have song. to go back and think every decision that anyone ever made might have just been a diversion for really what was happening in section thirty-one, where they saw this this. Uh, do you remember what the material was called? I, I I don't. Um, it was like hypercube or so. It was like something silly sounding. Yeah, I mean, more recently in Discovery, they had the control. You know, AI trying to take over everything and blow up everybody or something. It's been a little while since I watched that. So destroying the future, that kind of thing. So there you go, J James and the Giant Peach, MK Ultra, drug abuse, and uh, secret society Star Trek uh, Omega Directive. Mm. I, I guess I, I think I probably am a card carrying space communist, but you know, that's fine. <laughs> but yeah. Um, you wouldn't yeah, download an Apple. Why wouldn't download an Apple? No, oh, there, there was a recent one where um, they make it clear where the, they go to the distant future and someone makes it clear that the apple they're eating is reconstituted from the waste. Uh, well, that's that's what I was about to say. Yeah, like every apple that you eat that gets printed out of the ether, like that's poop. You're eating someone's yeah, no. poop. Oh, they say that directly in a in a recent episode. So, <laughs> did they use the word poop? Uh, they might say feces or waste or something. I don't. I don't think they went. I don't think poop was in the script. But you know, a, a, an equally obvious word. They might at least modern TV. They might have just called it a shit apple. I don't remember. So, so <laughs> hypothetical. If you knew for a fact, like if you saw somebody go into the bathroom and then all of a sudden an apple gets printed and it's an apple, but you know where that apple came from unequivocally, like you saw the, the person that the apple came from. Let's just say that versus Klaus Schwab serving you up a big heaping order of worms and grubs. Are you eating <laughs> poop apple or are you eating the worms? Well, I guess I'm eating the poop apple because the worms just look horrible, right? Yeah, yeah, that's the right now, answer. I, one of my buddies, you know, he when he come out to visit, we hang out, and I think five times where he kept telling me the story about scientists at Kyoto University inventing a shit burger, you know. So of course we had to talk. He kept forgetting he told me a story, and then he tell it to me again. We have to decide if we're going to eat the shit burger or not while we are walking to a hamburger <laughs> restaurant. That's probably why I kept bringing the story up. 
<laughs> I mean, I'm sure it's not a complete shit burger. Yeah, it's a, maybe it's got some synthetic shit in it too. I don't know. <laughs> as long as it's got some of that Thousand Island uh, special sauce, I'm sure that someone can market it to someone. Yeah, douse anything in sauce, it should be fine. People still eat Arby's willingly to this day. So, um, just out of curiosity, since it recently was released and it's also uh, dull adjacent, at least, uh, d- did you see the Wonka film? I haven't. I tried watching it, but I, I just had a really horrible bootleg copy, so I'm waiting for a slightly better copy. Although, what I did see of it, I I almost felt like no one needed this. Like, no one was out. No one it. needed it. Uh, one, I, I'll say the songs are actually pretty good in that one. I, as someone who keeps saying on here, I'm not, like, a big musical guy. But they're, they're well done. Um, the Timothy... Whatever Chalamet. Chalamet. Yeah, he's um, imagine not... trying to step into the freaking shoe prints of Gene Wilder. I don't care mm. who you are, man. That's recipe for just absolute failure. He needed a little. A little he's not bad, but he needed more menace. You did. Yeah, it doesn't quite wash. Dude, that Gene man. Wilder. That's one of my favorite. Um, I don't remember where I heard this one, but it it completely changed my whole mind on Gene Wilder and and. Um, Charlie and Chocolate Factory, but when he comes out and he's like wobbly and it looks like he's like old and sickly and he goes and he falls down, but then he like turns it into like a little role, like an acrobatic mm-hmm. act, and he's like pop. Uh, apparently, that was, if not completely improvised, but it, that was like a tweak that Gene Wilder added to the script after he was reading it. And the reason that he gave is that from that moment on, that the audience knew that nothing he said could be taken um, for his word because he, he tricks you the first time you see him before he even says anything, he's already tricked you into thinking he's something that he's not. So that, that one little symbol early on is like saying like whatever the dude's saying and whatever message that it seems like he's conveying, it's, it's absolutely not that there's something else that he's saying, which is the whole story of Charlie and the chocolate factory. Right. Yeah, uh, but I was going to say, so the movie, it's, it's, it's pretty good. It's not going to supplant the original uh, in my mind, uh, but it does have a lot of these carrying over themes. There's a lot of um, NLP stuff in there. You know, there's corporate cabal sort of stuff, mind control, contracts that, you know, we've been talking about, like, being stuck in a contract. It has that sort of stuff in it. So um, I would recommend having a look for, for those things. You got your conspiracy cinema too. So yeah, no, <laughs> I'll definitely be... watch it for that reason alone. Yeah. That might, that might be a, a winner for that. <laughs> so, but so, so better than the, uh, the Johnny Depp Wonka, I assume. Yeah. That's at the, um, that's at the tail end of all of them. I assume. Yeah. I mean, I don't hate that one, but for me, I could never like it because they didn't replicate the disturbing trippy part of the boat ride which is the best part of the original. <laughs> Speaking of weird MK Ultra stuff. <laughs> that might that for me that that honestly I think that's kind of like my dictionary picture for MK Ultra is Gene Wilder going through the psychedelic tunnel on his boat and Willy Wonka in the chocolate factory, you know? <laughs> I could see that. That that one I think is more of the Hycosamine Datura like we're going to just scare you into submission i think my my favorite uh mk ultra uh and i guess we're not allowed to talk about mk ultra because they they kick matt out immediately but my favorite version of mk ultra is probably like alice in wonderland where you get to pick which drug you want do you want to get big do you want to get small 
do you want to drink a little mushroom tea like you get they give you like a selection um it's almost like like one of those video games where they start you out and like what what do you want do you want the shotgun or do you want the rifle or do you want the handgun like that's kind of my approach I assume in this case you're not referring to a Burton movie, since we are technically talking about a Burton movie here. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, not the Burton uh, Allison would <laughs> <laughs> Which I have seen several times, because I had a young kid around who liked it. Uh, my, her, her, my mother-in-law, her grandmother, was scared of it. We couldn't play it if she was in, in the house, so which is fine, because I didn't want to see it It's not horrible. We, t- we touched on it when we did the classic animation one um, earlier in the series. Because I think I, I remember watching that one. It wasn't the worst in the world, but and if if we didn't bring it up on that episode, might as well just bring it up now too. But the Amer- American McGee's Alice is one of my favorite approaches. He outburtons Burton, and that's why I actually remember his name, uh, American McGee. Oh, I mean, it's a <laughs> badass name too to to just be named American. Um, but more than what Henry Selick, I uh, remember. See NLP memory techniques, man. I I know how to do it. <laughs> but it, it almost in my mind, it's almost like Henry Selleck, great, commendable, American McGee, better than Henry Selleck, shots fired, and then maybe Tim Burton just from name uh, brand recognition alone. I, I am sitting here wondering because we, of course, we talked about Fantasia being the the original kind of incantation for Disney animation, Toy Story being a second one. Mm-hmm. Is that live action Alice in Wonderland another one that maybe? Financially, it's successful. Artistically, I would say no. I don't now think we have so, this man. Whole wall of live action remakes of all their animated movies. Or is that, is, I'm, is that just... I'm biased, but really, like again, like American McGee's Alice is better in every way than Tim Burton's Alice. I'm I'm um, sure. I'm just thinking as far as like the uh, the movie that sets off a trend, or maybe that's just a more like money making callous one because we find so much good art with the other two. <laughs> I don't know. I, I guess, I, guess of... I think I'm too biased to have a, an objective opinion on that one, but I've, I just think that the Tim Burton Alice is just such a weird oddball left field one. Like that, that is going after your nightmare uh, before Christmas audience. That's going after your hot topic audience and the oh, movie is sure. almost like custom tailored for that audience as opposed to being a good movie that attracts those people. You know what right. I mean? It's it's like the it's like the He Man of Alice in Wonderland movies, where it's like they start with the product and the demographic, and then they like work backwards from it. Hmm. Um, did you have anything else uh, in your notes you wanted to hit before we wrap this? Uh, one just up? we need to start a tally now of how many children's authors that turn into huge commercial successes really are just British intelligence that were getting us in the World War Two. And again, I, uh, don't don't you know knock the uh, power of something like a Bond franchise too. It comes from different angles. <laughs> yeah, yeah, got to look at it from another angle. Just like the movie, this movie starts out with that NLP uh, technology. That's right. I just NLP'd myself. <laughs> I just peed myself. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, here, I, this is this is kind of just a dumb story, but it almost has something to do with that. I was walking with a friend um, under a bridge. Uh, we, were, we were walking through town and we walked out of the bridge. He looks behind, I'm like, why are you doing that? And he's like, making sure no one's throwing a brick at me. I'm like, oh, really? He's like, well, I ain't been bricked yet, <laughs> which I like that <laughs> phrase. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, oh, I guess he's not wrong. <laughs> I mean, that, that's the whole 
premise of like uh the, the magic socks or the magic underpants um not the mormon version but like the like the the baseball version or the sports version where the guy will like always wear that same pair of socks because every time you know like it hasn't failed yet uh so you just kind of attribute that to a, a certain token and somehow i keep wearing this shirt but that's because it's cold and i'm lazy <laughs> that's a different you're, you're reason say it's magical it's not magical no <laughs> it's new <laughs> um okay. yeah what, what do you got going on what do I have going on? Uh, I'm always uh, talking about movies and stuff. I guess I'll do this first today. Yep. I do lots of podcasting. You can find me on Patreon at Podcastio Podcastius, where on Time Enough Podcast, uh, we do talk about the Twilight Zone. We will eventually get to the Nightmare at 20,000 Feet. Uh, I also talk about really good movies and really bad movies on Films and Filth, the Citizen Kane of Podcasting. And what else did I do? Oh, Space 1999 is a, is a nice trippy one, which we talk about on Podcast 1999. Okay, I got that out. What's cooking on your end? So I also now have my own podcast. So wherever you're listening to this, you should be able to search for Paranoid American Podcast and find that almost on episode 50 already. I think I just cleared 47, which is pretty big because I guess like the, the drop-off at 30 episodes is like 5% of podcasts make it to 30 so we're, we're going strong. We're not going to stop. And I guess technically I've already blown past that through just Occult Disney itself, right? Because <laughs> like episode 36, I think, if my, if my math is correct. Something like that. So if you're listening to this now, please at least go and download or subscribe or do the five-star thing for Paranoid American Podcast. And I, I'll play us out with a commercial of a new series, um, chosenwan.com. And this is where I think I might have come across you, Matt, uh, was maybe through Juan or Tinfoil Hat or somewhere between those three. But <laughs> this, this is a comic book series that's about a conspiracy podcaster, a real one, uh, Juan Ayala of the 101 podcast. But he gets superhuman abilities and finds this whole secret society of podcasters. And it's got a whole bunch of different cameos of other big conspiracy podcaster names and comedians and stuff. So that's going to be the next big thing that I'll be promoting for the next couple months. So get used to hearing me talk about it. <laughs> if you can just say that you, you uh, peed yourself again, we can play it off. I just peed myself again. I ain't been bricked yet. Footprints lead to the sea of clouds An Iceland's Helen dream out loud With a patch quilts of serpentine Where we awake within the dream I know I knew you all along Forever in the song of songs Wormholes they link up dimensions And sparrows to many dimension Electric honey grids sail through 
said peek-a-boo today, shaboo. I know I knew you all along. Forever in this song of songs. In this sea of clouds. In this sea of clouds. All of what's real's invisible. What's eternal is invincible. I know I knew you all along. Forever in this song of songs. In this sea of clouds. In the sea of clouds In the sea of clouds Forever in the sea of clouds